Welcome to Thesis, a podcast about trends in higher education systems in international spheres, exploring the field of higher education across the world. I'm your host, Kelly Davis. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Anna Adametz and Dr. Nikki Schur to discuss using first and family as an indicator of widening higher education participation and the labor market outcomes of first and family students. We look specifically at the cases of England and the United Kingdom and Hungary. Both of our guests hold positions at the University College of London Social Research Institute, where Dr. Adametz is a research associate and Dr. Schur is an associate professor, where they collaborate on this research. In addition to her role at UCL's institute, Dr. Adametz is a research associate at the Institute of Economic Center for Economic and Regional Studies. Hello and welcome to another episode of Thesis. I'm here today with Dr. Anna Adametz and Dr. Nikki Schur, and we're going to be talking about first and family students in Hungary and the United Kingdom today. So Nikki and Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Wonderful. So we're going to be talking a lot about first and family kind of identification of students as an indicator today in two different countries. So I'd like to start by having you both tell the audience a little bit about your research and also the concept of first and family students in the context of England and in Hungary. So how do you define first and family student in your research? And we can go ahead and Anna, we, we can start with you. Okay. So in the uh, Hungarian research that we do, and actually this is going to be very same in England too, we say that a young person is first in family if they go to university, earn a degree, but none of the parents did the same thing beforehand. So basically we require them to do not have any graduate parents. This is how we define first in family. And I'm curious, is there any particular reason why the term is selected in in England or in Hungary? Because we also have first generation students. So is there any background to why first in family was chosen? You mean the name? Yes. Yes. So it's... um... As far as we found, the first generation expression is usually used in the U.S. literature and the first in family was used in the Australian literature. And basically, outside of the Anglo-Saxon countries, not much evidence was written. So basically, these were the two expressions to choose from and then we just we just basically chose one. But it's the same as the first, in fam- first generation students in the U.S. is just a different expression. Nikki, do you have anything to add? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, what I can add to that, I guess, is so we'll find we'll talk a little bit more about the data we're using as we go forward talking about the research. But we were using a data set um, that looks at a birth cohort of individuals who are born 1989, 1990, and just the individual is surveyed. So we know a lot about that individual person. We don't know a lot about their siblings. And so the term first generation or first in family in general just, just refer to the parental generation as compared to that individual. We also often get questions, well, you know, what if the person has an older sibling or a cousin who went to university? We don't observe those people in the data sets that we're using. And importantly, I think universities don't know that either. So they're often asking students, are you the, did your parents go to university or do your parents have a university degree? But they don't ask, you know, do you have an older brother or sister who's going to university or has a university degree? So I think that distinction is important. That's how policymakers are using first and family or first generation. 
obviously someone who has a sibling or a cousin who went to university might have access to more information. And we can talk about that. But in our research, we really are just comparing the individual to the parents. Sometimes we also get the question, you know, oh, I had a grandparent that went to university, but my parents didn't go. So does that still mean that I'm first in family? And in our research and in policy context or university admissions, it does. Universities aren't asking if your grandparents went went to university. They don't know and they frankly don't really care. So yes, that could be the case that that happened. I think it's probably pretty rare. We do have one colleague who always likes to tell me that his grandmother went to university, but neither of his parents did. Um, But again, that's very rare. Um, So in general, we really are just comparing individuals to their parents. And yeah, it makes sense that you would want to really make that distinction, especially when dealing with quantitative analysis because of the, you know, potential variables that might influence uh, the, the data. So thank you both for providing those definitions and kind of the, the reasoning there. So why do you think it's important to research first and family as an indicator in general? And what is it an indicator of? And Nikki, we'll, we'll turn to you for this question. Yes, I think there's a couple of reasons um, why it's important. We still know that access to university is really related to your family background. So we know that people from more disadvantaged backgrounds are much less likely to go to university. At the same time, we also know that university degrees bring a lot of positive life outcomes. So that could be higher earnings, better health, longer lifespan even. And so there's a lot of reasons that we want people to have like an equal chance to go to university because there is a lot of benefit um, in doing so. So, but given that we know that access is really dependent on your family background, one of the things that is an indicator of disadvantage is coming from a family where neither parent has a university degree. So that tends to be an indicator of disadvantage. At the same time, what we realized when we were starting this project is that a lot of universities are actually already recognizing that and are using potential first generation status. So having parents who don't have university degrees as an indicator of disadvantage. So in the UK or in England, there's this whole agenda called widening participation, which is about getting people from disadvantaged backgrounds into university and increasing access. That's obviously happening in the US and Canada and lots of countries. And so, yeah, trying to understand which measures of disadvantage we should be using was kind of one of the impetus behind this project. We wanted to understand, we want, you know, we want people from disadvantaged backgrounds to access university, but how should we quantify disadvantage? I'm curious, a bit of a surprise question here, but have you received any pushback by calling it an indicator of disadvantage specifically? I see some nods. So if, what if you care to elaborate? <laughs> I mean, well, okay. So what I can say to that is that, yeah, often we get the point, well, you know, is this really disadvantage or is it maybe just a non-advantage? So there's maybe a difference there, right? Thinking about like, is this actually a real disadvantage? So what we do, and we can talk about this more, is we compare in the data set that we're using people who are um, first generation or first in family. Um, and we look at, well, how many other types of disadvantage do they also face? Because, right, we could think about things like being on free school meals, living in a deprived neighborhood, being from an ethnic minority group, low income family. We have lots of other measures, right? It's a very rich data set. And what we find is that actually 80% of the people who are first in family, face at least one other disadvantage. So in general, I would say this group is probably a more disadvantaged group. Of course, there are going to be some people who are first in family, but maybe, you know, their parents still have relatively high earning occupations. They don't live in a deprived neighborhood, etc. So in general, we still view it as some type of disadvantage. You know, if you wanted to be a little bit more pragmatic, you'd say maybe it's a non-advantage because it's not going to help you. Coming from a family without with parents who didn't go to university negatively predicts 
the probability that you will go to university. So in that sense, it seems like a disadvantage. And and remind what's kind of the purpose of understanding the disadvantages as a data set in the first place, or what's the end goal? So basically, the end goal was really to understand how first in family as a me- as a measure of disadvantage or non advantage compares to all these other potential sources of disadvantage that Nikki mentioned, free school meals and deprived neighborhoods and things like that. So basically that was the goal. We didn't we, we didn't start it, this project to just show that person being a person family is a disadvantage. It was more, more like a way of discovery. Basically, we use this really rich database that actually follows young people born in around 19... 19- 89, 1990 in England. We can follow these people from age 13 till age 25. And we know a lot about them. So we know really rich measures of their family background. They, we have their test scores from tests they did in compulsory school, you know, and then of course we know whether they went to university or not. So basically we can take this data and we can look at how these potential individual features, background characteristics, and potential indicators of disadvantage predict going to university in a statistical sense. So basically what we did, we, we took this data and we estimated uh, predictive models, and then we compared how these different potential sources of disadvantage uh, predict uh, going to university. And what we found is that independently from the methods that we used, we tried quite a couple, showed that being a virgin family is really a big barrier in terms of going to university. And I think from a macro perspective, if you're, you know, zoom out a little, like we want to live in a society where going to university isn't going to be predetermined by the environment in which you grow up, right? We want people who are high achieving and high, like high attaining individuals to be able to go to university. Of course, we know that that's also going to be related to family background and we're in all kinds of disadvantage. But ideally, we want to live in a society where not having parents who went to university means that you, we don't want that to mean that you're not going to go to university. So understanding kind of these relationships and mechanisms is a way to try and improve justice in society. Absolutely. And Anna, you, you talked a bit about some of the, the comparative analysis that you were doing. If you can describe more about these methods that you were looking at and how you specifically looked into the validity of first and family as an indicator of disadvantage when it comes to widening the participation in higher education. So we basically took this data and we estimated and we used different statistical methods. Basically, we estimated linear probability models to predict the probability of going to university. We also used some machine learning algorithms and we took all of these potential sources of disadvantage into the model. And then we compared how well they predict the probability of going to university. And then we concluded that those things that predict university participation really well, those are the important ones. And what is also meaningful or important here is that when we did this, we also controlled for a lot of other characteristics of these students. So basically, the easiest way to to think about this is that we took two young person, one person family or potential person family, one with graduate parents who have very similar family background otherwise, of course, excluding those other types of disadvantage measures, who had very similar test scores, for example, who were of the same gender and who lived in similar areas. 
And then we looked at whether having non-graduate parents would be an important predictor of going to university, conditional and all of these other things. And when we estimated the model, these models, then it turned out that actually being a first in family is the most important predictor of going to university, even comparing to these other um, potential measures of disadvantage like preschool meal or living in a deprived area. So that's about kind of participation in higher education. When we think beyond completing higher education, some of your research has also looked at the labor market outcomes of first and family graduates versus non-first and family graduates. So what have been some of the connections between this research you've been doing with first and family as an indicator and the labor market outcomes that you see with this group of students. And we'll talk a little bit here about the differences and the similarities between Hungary and and England. And then also one of the points that you highlight in this particular conversation is also the difference, the disparities between men and women as well. Nikki, if you want to start by talking about England. Right. Yeah. So as Anna mentioned, we're we have this cohort study um, where we're able to track these, these individuals from age 13 till age 25. And that's really powerful because we know, you know, what kind of test scores that they get on really important high stakes exams during high school, what they end up studying at university. So what kind of subject, what kind of university they attend? So is it an elite university? Is it a more technical, different things about the university? And then we observe them at age 25. So at age 25, these individuals have graduated from their undergraduate degrees. Some of them still could be studying, but actually quite a fair amount have entered the labor market and we know how much they earn. So that's reported in the survey. And so what we're able to do is to construct these types of models that are based on the Mincer framework, where we're basically trying to compare labor market earnings, so outcomes that are captured at age 25, how much people earn, um, conditional on a range of characteristics, like Anna mentioned. We want to basically be comparing very similar people. So we want to try and hold as many things as we can constant about these individuals and say, well, we're really interested in just understanding what's the relationship of being a first-in-family graduate on earnings. Um, we do this separately for men and women. That's pretty common in this literature. And that's partially because men and women we know have very different um, labor market participation patterns. Obviously, these individuals are still quite young and that's something I'll come back to. So we're looking at men separately and we're looking at women separately. And we're here, we're actually only looking um, at university graduates because we know that the labor market is quite different for people who go to university versus those who don't. So imagine that we're comparing university graduates, men that parents were graduates, and then the first in family, for example. And when we look at the men, we don't find any difference in earnings. So it seems like the first and family men and the non-first and family men earn essentially very similar labor market earnings at age 25. Something is happening at university potentially. Uh, and when they enter the labor market, that they're kind of able to compensate for that disadvantage. When we look at the women, however, we see that the first and family women are earning about seven and a half percent less at age 25 than their female peers whose parents also had university degrees. And that's pretty stark. That's at age 25 already a sizable difference. There's different theories about how this disadvantage might grow over time or compound, but at age 25, we already see that. And we try and probe a little bit to think about, well, you know, what could be the difference here? Because essentially, you know, we're controlling for a lot of prior attainment. We're controlling for where, what they studied at university, what kind of universities. So we're really comparing very similar graduate women. And we, we see that that first and family disadvantage plays a role there. And that's something that Anna will speak a little bit more about in terms of what we're interested in the future. But we're trying to understand, well, where is this? What's the source of this disadvantage? Unfortunately, we, you never have every variable that you want in a data set when you didn't collect it yourself. This is secondary data. There's some evidence that it could be about maybe the types of firms where women are working, but we can't really test this in, in this data. And that's part of the reason why we wanted to start working with the Hungarian data. Seems like a great moment then to talk about the Hungarian data. 
Yeah, so the first really interesting thing here is that we find really similar patterns patterns in terms of wage differences using the Hungarian data. We can look at a very similar cohort. They were born about the same time, and we also look at them at the same age, around age 25. But we find in Hungary is that within women, first-in-family graduate women earn on average about 4% less than non-first-in-family graduate women. However, the same difference for men is just 1%. So in Hungary, we find a very small negative fifth wage gap for men too, but it, but the fifth wage gap for women is four times as large as the fifth wage gap for men. So in this sense that the if there is such a thing as a first-in-family penalty that this is much larger for women, this is the same in Hungary as well. And this is really interesting result, not just because these are two different countries, but also because these are two very different types of data as well. So in England, we use a survey data where the survey members reported their earnings themselves. In Hungary, we use administrative data. So that's not something that people reported. This is something that the tax authority registered. And still, the differences are um, very uh, similar. Another advantage of the Hungarian data is that in this data, we can link each people to the firm where they work. So we can not just compare how much they earn, but we can also compare how good the firm is where they work. We see the average wages of their co-workers, for example. We see a lot of characteristics of the firms, like how much value added they produce, for example. And what we see is that it is true for both men and women, first in family graduate men and women, that they tend to work at a little bit worse firms than non-first-in-family graduate men and women. However, this difference is much larger for women. And if we take this 4% uh, fifth wage penalty on women, basically 80% of this penalty comes from first-in-family graduate women being selected to a little bit worse firms than non-first-in-family graduate women. I'm curious to know, because you mentioned that this is maybe surprising based on how you have two different countries demonstrating similar trends. If this was a surprise, what were maybe some of kind of the key differences between Hungary and England that maybe would have led you to have different predictions about how the data might have played out? Actually, there is one very important difference that I should have mentioned is that obviously Hungary and England are very different in terms of how is this intergenerational mobility in terms of education. For example, in the English data, what we find is that two-thirds of recent university graduates are first in family, which is which is a really large share and shows that England is quite a mobile country. The same share in Hungary is only 40%. So basically, Hungary is a much less mobile country than England. And still, it is true that this fifth penalty is much larger for women than on men. So even though this context is really different, obviously England is a much richer country than Hungary. That's another big difference. And there are many, many others that we cannot mention here now. But but uh, even though these differences are there, this thing that intergenerational mobility seems to be a little bit harder for women than for men is true in both countries. I think it's interesting too that looking at OECD data that, well, there's a less higher education attainment in Hungary, I believe. So it's, it's kind yes. of interesting that they, you know, 
it's certainly something to look into that they have lower rates than a first and family students because technically they would have a larger potentially pool to to gather from, of course, depending on, you know, how many children are being born or such and a number of other factors. But that is really interesting that still, I mean, it says something to, again, the whole argument of using first and family as an indicator when there's some something similar going on between different countries. Yeah, so basically this different two-third share of recent graduates being first and family in England versus the same share just being 40% in Hungary is within graduates already. So basically these shares already control for the fact that yes indeed in Hungary less people go to university than in England which is obviously really true but for example in the Hungarian case if there was like a policy aim to increase the share of first in family university graduates that would also that would also raise the share of graduates in general as well because it would just mean that more people would go to university in England there is a specific policy or there was or there has been recently a specific policy to increase the share of university graduates to 50% there is no such policy in Hungary at least not yet but Let's hope for the best. Always, always hope for the best. But speaking of policy, that's a great segue into talking about what types of interventions might help kind of with these gaps uh, that we're, that you're seeing, you've been seeing in the data. So Anna, we'll start with you in the, in the Hungarian context or either context. And then uh, Nikki, you can, you can add your thoughts afterwards. Sure. So basically what we see both in England and in Hungary is that fifth graduates somehow undermatch in the labor market. In England, we see that they are more likely to work in occupations or in positions that would not even require the highest degree. In Hungary, we see, as I mentioned, that first-in-family graduates tend to work at worse firms than non-first-in-family graduates. So these are basically all, all signs of undermatching on the labor market or choosing worse positions and worse firms that they could choose. So one potential intervention could be if universities put more emphasis on helping graduates or soon-to-be graduates in terms of how they can find a job, what are the good jobs to aim for, they would give more career, career advice and things like that. So this could be, for example, one intervention that could help these person family graduates to find good positions for themselves. Yeah, I think um, that that's obviously a really key one. Um I mean, something we haven't spoken about that much is kind of what we're able to see in the terms of the university experience of these individuals. I think that also kind of indicates where interventions could also be done. So this data set, we should have mentioned, it's called Next Steps, and it's housed at the Center for Longitudinal Studies at UCL. So there was no real survey wave while they were at university, which is kind of a shame. So we don't have a lot of detailed information about their university experience. But what we do know is that, so the first and family are less likely to study at a Russell Group University. And that's kind of a measure of an elite, more elite institution. Those institutions also tend to have higher labor market returns. And so again, I think this is kind of speaks to what Anna was just saying about undermatching in the labor market. There's a potential here that individuals are also undermatching when they are making their initial higher education decision, which of course can have a knock-on effect in terms of what you end up going to do um, later on in the labor market. So 
even at the school level, kind of more advice, guidance um, could be really important. Individuals whose parents didn't go to university don't have that kind of role model guidance in the home. And so thinking about how schools can do a better job of guiding first and family students seems really important. And Nikki, do you mind defining what the Russell Group is? So the Russell Group, sorry for listeners who don't know about the Russell Group. It's a, it's technically a kind of a, a organ, it's an organization. It's a membership for these 24 universities in the UK that are the more research intensive universities as a result kind of are also the more elite universities. So Oxford and Cambridge are in the Russell group, um, UCL where Anna and I both work are, are in the Russell, is in the Russell group. And um, so it tends to be kind of the older, um, more research intensive universities. It, like that designation is really about the research intensive nature of the universities, but that's very much kind of the highest ranked universities in the UK. Thank you. And then what about in terms of using first and family as an indicator at the policy level, both in terms of higher education, institutional policy, and also government policy? How should these institutions be utilizing this indicator? Nikki, we'll we'll have you answer this question. So I think that one of the answers is that institutions already are using this measure. And that was something that really struck us when we were starting this project. We looked at the widening participation websites of all of these Russell Group universities, the 24 universities, and we saw that the majority of them were already using first and family as some kind of way to capture disadvantage. That's not being done in a very coordinated way. And that is probably something that could be improved or thought about more. What universities tend to do in terms of widening participation is maybe they'll have special summer schools or special kind of open days where they want people from a first and family or potential first and family background to come. And increasingly, there's a move in the UK to offer contextualized admissions. So this is saying if there's a grade requirement to get into a course, we're going to adjust that based on context or background of the applicant. And one thing that is being used by some universities or could be used um, is first and family status or potential first parents who don't have university degrees. So that is already happening. And I think increasingly, there is going to be a big push for that for contextualized admissions, because universities are expected, like Anna was talking about, there is a push to have a certain proportion of the population have a university degree, but also to improve equity. So universities in the UK have signed these access agreements where they're guaranteeing that improving equity amongst their student body is going to be a priority or they're going to be limited in terms of the government funding that they're actually going to get. The other interesting development I would say in terms of a policy, some employers in the UK are also starting to use first and family as a measure of disadvantage. So some of the big accounting firms, some of the big consulting firms, when you apply, will ask um, some questions about your background. And increasingly, one of those questions is also, are you the first in your family to go to university? So employers are starting to understand as well that this is a really important measure of disadvantage and even capturing those statistics in terms of applicants. And then, you know, who's getting these kind of top elite jobs is one important thing that's happening. Of course, the government isn't requiring this. Employers are deciding to do this on their own. But we've seen that the government has required, for example, gender wage gap reporting. And there is some discussion about having to report other types of wage gaps. So ethnic wage gaps, class wage gaps, you could see that there could be a scope for government to ask companies to report these kind of things. That's super interesting. I didn't think about the, you know, what what firms, what companies are doing as well and what their role is to play. But obviously, it's very important. And I used to be a career services advisor in the US. And and I think that was something that we were seeing. And I'm sure that we're seeing it more now too, is companies also kind of taking a, a little bit more almost responsibility to keep an eye on these things as well. So, and I'm just curious before we move on to the next question, if you you mentioned earlier that there's not really any policies directed at first and family students in general. Do you think that, that that's on the horizon at all? Are our education institutions paying any attention to 
kind of measuring this data and, and such and utilizing it? You mean in Hungary? Yes, in Hungary. Sorry, yeah. yes. So, yeah. So, um, as far as I know, there is no, like, central policy looking at inequalities in higher education in general at all. However, there are some universities that have their own particular programs. For example, the biggest university of economics, Corvinus University in Budapest, has now its own program to increase diversity. And they even try to do something like contextual admission which means they would lower the bar a little bit for disadvantaged students in terms of getting into university. But as far as I know, they have just started experimenting with this maybe a year ago or two. So it cannot really be seen right now how it is working. But but I would say that at some universities, yes, the problem, they see the problem and they try to do something with it. But I at least am not aware of any country level central policy in terms of increasing equity in education, which is really bad, actually. Yeah, I think that Hungary is also an interesting case when it comes to higher <laughs> <our> education <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> policy. So, <laughs> so what is next in this line of research? You mentioned, you both mentioned earlier that there are some different directions that you hope to go in. And I think that you, you were looking at one data set, a secondary data set, and I can just imagine that there's so many more, as Nikki, you mentioned, variables that you want to look at. And this is also a data set from people who are born what what year is it over 30 years ago and um what what more is to kind of be looked at and explored and and I think that we're going to have you tackle this question. Yes. Yeah, so um, with Nikki, we have another strand of research which looks at the uh, role of non-cognitive skills in labor market gender gaps. And in particular, we are looking at confidence and overconfidence and how that explains the gender gap in working in top jobs, for example, where we find that it matters and also in terms of wages and going to STEM. And in a potential future research, we would like to sort of match the two strands and to look at whether confidence or overconfidence matters in terms of these person-family penalties, especially because what we see in the Hungarian data that even though we know that selection to firms, for example, matters, if we take selection to firms out, there is still a fifth penalty for both men and women. So even if we control for this selection, it is still going to be true that first in family graduate men and women would still earn a little bit less than non-first in family graduate women. The Hungarian data is limited in the sense that this is administrative data. We cannot observe skills or cognitive, non-cognitive skills and overconfidence in particular in that data. But as you said, we have this, this really amazing rich English cohort study data that we can use to basically look at the interaction of overconfidence and social background and see whether some of this still remaining first-in-family penalty comes from first-in-family graduates being less uh, confident or less overconfident. This has been very interesting to talk about the research and the work that you've done with this data set and, and also then looking at Hungary as kind of a comparison point. So we very much appreciate you 
you coming on to share about your work with us today. So for our final question, which is something that we ask all of our guests, this is a personal link to higher education. And the question is, who was someone particularly influential in your higher education journey or in the development of your professional research? And Nikki, I'd like to start with you and then we'll go to Anna. Great, thanks. Um, so I think uh, maybe this is probably true for Anna as well, but she can speak to this. Um, there are not many female economics professors. So I don't think I had any female economics professors during my undergraduate studies. I think that's right. Nationally, um, or inter- even internationally, it's under 15% of all um, economics professors are women. And so, yeah, I don't know if that was, I never really thought about going into economics. I really liked it, but it wasn't until my final year of my undergraduate studies that I did an honors thesis. And my professor, Eric Levinson, was just a phenomenal supervisor and really helped me so much in learning how to do research, essentially, already even as an undergraduate. And it really, really motivated me. And I thought, okay, actually, this is something that I want to do. And I think having that kind of close mentorship, um, especially, yeah, as a woman who's where there aren't a lot of obvious role models or mentors in this field was really important. And someone who just really took the time to you know, even sit down and learn, you know, look at the data with me, work on Stata, work on code, um, think about how to present results, really like how to communicate research. And I think that was for me kind of a fundamental thing that started me on this path. Yeah, actually, it is really great that you mentioned this, Nikki, that this whole economics research area and and the academic world is really, really male oriented and the share of women is particularly low uh, in this area. I really, I I think I really had similar experiences and especially because I am a personal family graduate myself and I think I got to, I got to the idea of what to do quite late. I was already 30 when I started my PhD and I think the most influential person I've had in my career was my supervisor, Gabor Kesdi. I did my PhD at the Central European University in Budapest. Then he became an associate professor at the University of Michigan. And his research looked at racial inequality and equal opportunity in education. And also he was, he, he did a lot of not just empirical research, but he did a lot of research in terms of how to do data analysis and how to do empirical economics well. And uh, very, very sadly, we actually lost him two years ago. He passed away at an incredibly young age. And uh, this was a huge loss for not just, of course, his family and friends, but also for the whole uh, economics profession. Everybody would know him. I think he was a really inspiring teacher and amazing social scientist. And he always used to say that he was interested in how people could get out of poverty they were born into. So in his view, the key to getting out of this intergenerational poverty was equal access to good quality education for all. And I really believe that he was right. Thank you very much, Anna, for bringing up um, your previous mentor and his memory feels very nice to kind of honor his legacy in this moment. So thank you both very much for your time today. It has been a pleasure speaking with you both. And I can say thank you again and again. But (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Thesis. This episode wraps up season two on first-generation students. And we're excited to share with you that our next season's topic is student international mobility. We'll be having conversations about incoming and outgoing students in countries we haven't yet covered, such as India and Sweden, and have a few revisits to places like Norway and China. We're also excited to bring on two new members of the team, Juliana Sofia Riano Sanchez and Petar Vujicic, and we hope to introduce you to them soon. Stay tuned. 
If you liked what you listened to on Thesis today, please follow the podcast and feel free to leave us a rating or a comment. Links to relevant work by our guests and their contact information can be found in the show notes. Today's thesis episode does not take position on the issues discussed on the podcast. Opinions expressed on this episode are solely those of the guests or hosts. This podcast is produced and edited by Ekaterina Kurinska, Ella Rubenstein, Tracy Waldman, Kelly Davis, and Maria Angeles Hidalgo. Original music is produced by Petter Strum. Thanks for listening to Thesis. We'll talk to you next time.